0: Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. We have been discussing the subject of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Melchizedek. And uh, just by way of review, with what we have found so far, uh, this is what we found the Bible to be teaching. That Christ's priesthood of, is of a superior order to any other priesthood. And the one that the book of Hebrews chooses to uh, liken Christ's ministry to is the Melchizedek priesthood. It says Christ's priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek or just like The one that Melchizedek was in for a number of reasons that we shall explore uh, together a little bit more. And we'll see what that means. We'll just pick up where we left off. But I just want to briefly run over what we found so far to kind of pick up where we left off. So we don't start in the middle of the stream uh, together. And uh, the the oath that David records, we saw uh, he recorded there while he was still living during the period of the law or while under the law. Uh, that particular dispensation, and it was of a future event. And the way that that is expressed and the way that it is worded uh, is, you know, uh, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You are a priest forever. The Lord has sworn he will not repent. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the way it's it's worded, even though it's worded in the present tense, the way David wrote it, what what happened was, David was being shown a vision of what occurred in heaven when Christ went back, having defeated sin and Satan. He was seeing what happened at that time. And that was revealed to him back there where he recorded it in the Psalms. So it was a vision of a prophecy and a vision of a future event. And uh, we have identified what that future event is, is the commencement of this more glorious, this better priesthood. Of Christ. And uh, in contrast to that, and that's, uh, we found that there are a number of different uh, views that exist that are false. This is one of the false views that we looked at that uh, misunderstands and misrepresents the priesthood of Christ. And based on that, as we said, there, there are some assu- assumptions being made and also some conclusions being drawn uh, based on this particular view that Christ's ministry uh, actually was there all the way from the beginning, even before the man Melchizedek lived. And it was functioning in heaven while all these other priesthoods were functioning on earth. And uh, this is a problem you will find that uh, the Bible does not present us with multiple simultaneous priesthoods running at the same time. We don't find that. And so uh, what that does, rather than honoring or magnifying Christ's office as a priest, it actually diminishes the meaning of Christ's ministry and what it took for Him to become that priest, uh, and hopefully, like I said, uh, we're going to see a little bit of that. So, uh, this this particular view that you might believe that, and if you do, I, I don't mean any offense to 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 address it. It's not to, to upset people, but it's to address the beliefs that we hold because the truth about the sanctuary, understanding the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, we're told is of vital importance for us. Our worship, particularly in the last days, is affected by the things we understand and we believe. And we're gonna look at some practical uh, aspects of that a little later, like I was saying. So that's just by way of review, this is what we found. And uh, the, the picture that the Bible gives us about that is very, very clear. And the basis, we saw the basis for this particular view is misunderstanding the meaning of shadow, that the Bible uses the word shadow as a metaphor when it comes to the law, not as a literal shadow of you or of a tree that you see in, in reality. Obviously, a literal shadow exists because the object that casts the shadow is there. In the Bible, the shadow is referred to as metaphorical, and the reality or the object that, or, or the thing that was casting his shadow is Christ, and the shadow is before the cross, and the light is after the cross. So that's how the metaphor works. And that's why the Bible tells us that the light of the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to earth, the Bible says the people that sat in darkness, what happened to them? They saw a great light. These are metaphors, Christ wasn't physically shining. These are metaphors, they're representing spiritual truths. And so that period before Christ came was the period of the shadows. It wasn't darker, you know, during the day or anything. It's a metaphor, okay? The shadows and the reality, the shadows and the light. The type and the anti-type. This is the picture that the Bible presents for us. And the cross stands there as the great marker for this particular event. So Melchizedek we saw was a man, a human being. And the book of Hebrews makes it clear that only a human being qualifies to minister as a priest for human beings. Very important uh, point to always remember. And the order of Melchizedek, was, as, as we saw also, was not a class or a category of priests Uh, with different persons functioning as priests. The order of Melchizedek only had one priest, Melchizedek. It functioned, operated there at that time on earth. And because of the information that is recorded about it, the absence of some of these details, Paul uses as illustrative of the superior ministry of Christ. And Christ's priesthood is like Melchizedek. You see, if Christ was a priest, if we go back to this, this chart, if Christ was a Melchizedek priest, from the beginning, before the man Melchizedek even existed, then you have a very serious problem when Melchizedek becomes a priest. Because you now have two priests in this priesthood and they're both working at the same time. That's a major problem. That's why we're saying Christ was not in the same order. This order only had Melchizedek and it's representative or it's a type. Christ's priesthood is, is far superior even to the Melchizedek priesthood, not just to the Aaronic priesthood. And we're going to look at some reasons in just one minute here. So it's not just equal. There are similarities and there are differences. The similarities are it's by an oath. It's not by succession. It's by an oath. Uh, it is not with descent or lineage. That's not what it's based on. It's an unchangeable priesthood, meaning it does not pass on to someone else. It has the one priest, and it's not by descent from Levi, of course. And Melchizedek had the dual office of both priest and king. Very representative of Christ. And uh, there are no successors. So there are no predecessors. There are no successors as well. And the name Melchizedek, like we said, means the righteous king or the king of righteousness. A very fitting uh, title that is fulfilled by Christ. What about the shortcomings of the Melchizedek priesthood? This is why I'm saying Christ was not a a priest in that order or from that order. What are the shortcomings of the Melchizedek priesthood? I'll ask you a question. The Melchizedek priesthood, was it an earthly or a heavenly priesthood? It was an earthly priesthood, right? So then it becomes obvious Christ is not an earthly priest. Christ is a heavenly priest. What kind of uh, sacrifices did Melchizedek offer? Animal sacrifices, right? Does Christ offer animal sacrifices? No. So Christ's priesthood is much better. Far superior. What temple did Melchizedek operate and function in? There was no temple. Right? There was no temple. There There was no sanctuary on earth. He did not even function in a temple. Christ, of course, operates and functions in the heavenly sanctuary. So... By far, Christ's priesthood is is superior to Melchizedek. The Bible makes that clear that Christ is a priest of a heavenly uh, order. Hebrews 4.14 tells us, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. That's how we are told to consider Christ in the book of Hebrews. He is passed into the heavens. That's the encouragement for us to hold fast, to our profession. One point here I also want to bring out when it says Jesus the Son of God. Who is that particularly referring to? Or maybe I should be a bit more specific. At what point did Christ become or have the name Jesus? The At the incarnation, right? Was his name Jesus before the incarnation? No. The angel came and told Mary and Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Or in the Hebrew it's Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus is his name as our human savior. He's not only human, of course, he is divine as well. But that's his unique name as the son of God and the son of man. He was never known as Jesus before that. So every time you see Jesus, it's actually a reminder of his Humanity, that's his human name. And so this is who is passed into the heavens, who has become our priest. And we'll see the significance of his humanity as well. Hebrews, uh, next verse, Hebrews eight and verse one tells us, now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This is far superior to any earthly priesthood that has ever existed. That's the priesthood of Christ. He is a high priest set on the right hand of God of the majesty in the, of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Again, notice the link here. It puts between being a priest and sitting on the right hand of God. The two are linked. And that's what happened when Christ, of course, went to heaven as a man. So we have a heavenly priesthood with a heavenly temple that does not offer animal sacrifices. That's the superior priesthood that we have. And Christ went through a particular process to actually qualify to become this priest. He had to obtain the qualification to actually become this priest. The Bible tells us that. uh, That is something that was earned. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. It says, But now hath he obtained, speaking of Christ, of course. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. When Paul says now, what's, what's he referring to? A time period, right? In the present. As contrasted with before that time. He says now something has happened. Christ obtained a more excellent Ministry. So what is he referring to? When did Christ obtain a more excellent ministry? By what he went through on earth as a man. You see, the ministry of Christ, brothers and sisters had to be obtained according to this verse. What that means is it wasn't always there. And we want to see what did Christ go through in order for him to obtain this? What does that actually mean? What does that practically mean? Why did that have to happen? And it's because he obtained this better ministry, more excellent ministry. He earned it. That's what qualifies him to become this mediator for this better covenant, which has in it better promises. A few verses earlier, he tells us a little bit of what had to happen for that to take place. Hebrews 8.3, he says, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Speaking of Christ, using the example of the earthly priest, he says, any priest, any high priest, one of the things he has to do is be able to offer gifts and sacrifice. And then he uses this reasoning. He says, this is why even Christ, he had to have something to offer. What is it that Christ offers? Or ministers. Himself, particularly, if I was wanting uh, to be even more detailed, it's his life. Correct? Because that's what uh, the blood of the bulls and goats, uh, Paul talks a lot about the blood. The blood is the life. When did Christ obtain or have this life that he offers to us? What do you think about it? All right, maybe let's back up a little bit. Which life? So just so I don't don't, uh, ask tough questions. Yeah, which life uh, is it that Christ ministers and offers for us? The life that he lived on earth. That's exactly right. In other words, it's not just a divine life, but it is also a human life and a life which has met and defeated sin and temptation every time. It's a life enriched with a victorious experience over sin and Satan. Correct? Now, the, the time when Christ obtained this is when he came as a man and as he lived his life. What he was doing, as he says this when he was here on earth, he says the Son of Man has come to give his, his life as a ransom for many. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What was he talking about? That's what he was going to offer and minister as our priest. He laid it down on the cross. That was a victorious humanity. And when he rose, he took up the same life, took that to heaven, was glorified, was ordained as our high priest. And now he has something of practical good to offer to us. You see, the priesthood, the believing in the priesthood of Christ is not just some theoretical doctrine that we just subscribe to. Oh, yes, I believe a priest in heaven, mostly place 1844 and we rattle off all the all the facts. Of, of the doctrine that's great but what practically does it mean that's the question what is the practical relevance for my christian walk day in and day out that christ is my high priest now this is what it is what he offers what he ministers and what he ministers is his very life that is why before he lived this life he did not have the qualification to be our high priest yet and so, God in His wisdom instituted these earthly priesthoods as examples and as illustrations of something that was to come better in the future. And so, Christ obtained this amazing experience and life that He lived on earth as a man, and that's what He offers. It was a very vital component. Now, what I mentioned here. Uh, is basically the the argument and the reasoning that Paul follows exactly in the book of Hebrews. One passage brings it up. It hardly needs any comment. We'll just read it together and hopefully you'll see the significance of it. The link and the, the lead up to Christ becoming this priest after the order of Melchizedek it's in Hebrews 5 verses 5 down to 10. This is what it says. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. But he that said unto him Thou art my son Today have I begotten thee. And I want to stop here for a minute. This has been misunderstood by some people. The point that Paul is making is Christ did not make himself a priest. But he was glorifying, not himself, it wasn't a selfish motive, but he glorified someone. Who was it? The father. It was the father who told him, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. But people have misunderstood that and said, oh, therefore Christ became a priest when his father told him, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. That's not the case. You with me? He's saying he glorified the one who told him, you are my son this day have I begotten you. What it's doing is basically establishing that the authority for the priesthood of Christ comes from the father. The same father who said one of the highest things that he ever declared about Christ was that you are my son. That's what imbues Christ with, with all the authority that he is, that he is truly the son of God. He's saying the same source for that is the source of the authority of the priesthood of Christ. It is the Father. That's basically what he's saying. And then he goes on. Verse 6. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is the same one saying this now as well? The Father. So he's saying the Father who said that you are my son is the same one who gave the oath. That's the point. And then he goes into the detail of the fulfillment of that oath. Verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, that's on earth, Christ, He's giving us the qualification, what Christ went through for that oath to be fulfilled. And when it was realized, it was when Christ came as a man, he suffered. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And then he was made perfect. And that's when he was called of God to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The humanity of Christ, brothers and sisters, is a vital, integral component for the priesthood of Christ. Without it, he could not become our priest. That makes the humanity of Christ all of a sudden very important, right? It wasn't just, you know, for show. It wasn't just so that he could die for us. It was so that he could obtain something for us. We have a perfected human being who is our high priest. That's the whole point. And so it does, Christ, great injustice Not honor, but injustice when we say, no, 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 he was a priest before he even earned the right to be a priest. He was a priest before he had something to offer. And this is why it's important to understand what the scripture means. And so this is the timing of the fulfillment and the humanity is everything. That's the kind of priest that we have. And so this is why we're saying this priesthood of Christ could only begin after he went to heaven as a man, and that's when all the earthly priesthood, uh, priesthoods came to an end. The ironic priesthood was the one functioning at the time. At the last one functioning, it came to an end because the better one has come. That's why we don't have priests anymore. Uh, you know, as, as believers, the Christian church does not have an order of priests. I know the verses that says we're all called priests and so on and so on, but we don't have an order of priesthood that functions in a way to bring people closer to God. We have a man. Christ Jesus, who does that for us. That's it. We don't have a need for anyone else. And everyone can come to God directly through him. And so, like I said, some of the, the a false view of the priesthood of Christ leads to false conclusions. That's so why I wanted to set the, the groundwork. Because when you get something wrong, it's like a domino effect. You'll get other things wrong. And uh, a correct understanding is designed to actually save us from falling into the trap of error. One, one of the false ideas that exists about uh, the priesthood of Christ. Is, uh... <coughs> Sorry, hold on. I'm having some technical difficulties here. Okay, uh, some people, of course, recognize that. Okay, uh, the humanity or the experience of Christ in humanity was was a was a vital component for his priesthood, and so here is a verse that uh, that we all know. Genesis three fifteen says, "And I will put enmity between the." Uh, And the woman, and sorry, just yeah, thank you. (laughs) Between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This was a prophecy of Christ when he would come as a man. When was this prophecy spoken? At the gates of Eden, most likely, right? Soon after the fall of Adam and Eve, somewhere there in that time period. When was this prophecy fulfilled? When Christ came as a man, when he came as the seed or the offspring, that's what seed means, the offspring, the child of the woman. When he came, when he was born as a man. But when the idea is, well, Christ was a priest all the time, his humanity is important. And I've heard it said, well, as soon as God said this, you know, the spirit of Christ was in humans. And in that sense, he was being formed as the seed of the woman. And for 4,000 years, Christ was kind of like, being formed until he was born as a man. This is very uh, creative mysticism. But I, this, is, this, is, this is an idea that exists because they say, and in this sense, Christ had a human experience and knowledge and qualified him to be a priest from that time as well. Uh, this is spiritualism, brothers and sisters. This is spiritualizing things, and, and, and uh, it's very mystical. But it's based on the need to prove and justify that Christ had to be a priest all the way from the beginning. And so there's creative attempts and efforts that happen to try and demonstrate that. Now, you might think that's strange, but this, there are people who believe this, honestly, who, who genuinely think that this is, this is how you understand the scriptures. Uh, this is... Not a correct understanding of scriptures. I can assure you of that. Uh, Christ's experience as a man began when he was born in Bethlehem. It wasn't before. Now, I'm not saying Christ was not helping people, was not, you know, uh, even the spirit of Christ. I'm not saying it wasn't in people or anything like that in the Old Testament. But that did not give him the experience of meeting with sin and Satan in the same way that he did when he became a man. When he himself took on our nature and actually became one of us. That happened at one point in history. And uh, here is another verse that I have heard uh, used in a similar manner. And uh, these are some mystical ideas. I'm, uh, some of these false conclusions I'm sharing with you based on this uh, false view. Uh, Isaiah 63, 9 says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, speaking of Israel in the wilderness who, uh, who were disobedient to God and and so on and so forth this is the context in all their affliction he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and his pity he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old and once again because the experience of Christ as a human is integral to his priesthood uh, at this time Christ was not a priest in heaven was he during Israel's wanderings in the uh, wilderness no he wasn't but I've heard this as well, people say, but look, when, Christ, when it says here that uh, Christ, the angel of his presence is Christ, he was leading them. When it says he was afflicted in all their afflictions, it means in all these things, he felt it, he experienced it. And in this way, he gained a knowledge of what it was like to be a human, to be tempted and tried. This is mysticism. This is not what the verse is talking about. You know what this verse says in English? They gave God a headache. Okay. You know, it it troubled God. And the suffering of his people was felt by God. He felt their suffering. He empathized with them. He understood what they were going through. But it does not mean that God experienced temptation. The Bible actually tells us that it is impossible for God to be tempted with evil. Isn't that right? That's another reason why Christ had to give up being in the form of God and take on the form of? A servant so that he could experience what it's like to be tempted with evil. It was impossible for him as the divine Son of God in the image and likeness of God. And so it's important to read the verses brothers and sisters in a way that the verse says and not to read into into them things that are of a spiritualistic nature. And so this is uh, one of the examples of the abuses of God's word. It wasn't God suffering, cause sin, now, don't, don't get me wrong, sin has caused God immense suffering and pain. From the beginning, it has grieved the heart of God and the heart of the son of God as well. But it is not this suffering and this grief that qualified Christ to become our priest. It's when he came and he himself went through the experience of meeting sin and Satan personally, of meeting temptation and defeating it. And on the cross, defeating satan and saying it is finished that is the experience that earned him the right to become our high priest and uh here is here is a, a comment on that from the book of zara of ages i think you're familiar with the book of zara of ages most people here should be familiar with it. most people probably have already read it here's a, from the chapter uh, dealing with Calvary or the cross, what happened on the cross. This is what it says, page 744. Jesus was earning the right to become the advocate of men in the Father's presence. Interesting words, right? I think it's pretty obvious that in earning the right, it means before that, he did not have that right as a man, because he was going to do that on the behalf of men. Here's a, another one a few pages later. It's even clearer. Desire of Ages 757. The great sacrifice has been made. This is in the death of Christ. Same chapter. The way into the holiest is laid open. A new and living way is prepared for all. No longer need sinful, sorrowing humanity await the coming of the high priest. Henceforth, the Savior was to officiate as priest and advocate in the heaven of heavens. That puts succinctly very well what we just found in the scriptures. From henceforth means from this time on. I think it's pretty obvious that before that time, he wasn't yet a priest. That's why God instituted this earthly inferior priesthood and the longest lasting one, which is the Levitical priesthood, as a type and a symbol for that. And this is why when Christ actually died, something very significant happened in the temple in Jerusalem at the time. You remember? The veil was rent. What does that mean? The system of types is over. Why? The fulfillment had come. You no longer need an earthly priest now. The better one is here. Pretty standard stuff. We all know this. We should, but when we misunderstand this, it opens the door to a grave many other errors, as we saw. Uh, another one of that that I want to look at another one of these views is, since the sacrifice of Christ, the death of Christ is an integral component of that. Well, if Christ was a priest there, uh, you know, people say, well, he had to have something to offer. Well, well, what did he have to offer? Oh, here is a verse. Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You know what? Christ, somehow, something died from the foundation of the world. And this is how Christ offers his blood as the priest. Have you heard that? I've heard that alarmingly too often. This is a sorry abuse of the word of God. When it says Christ is the lamb slain, you know the verse in Revelation. I think we all know it. It's one of the most abused verses, unfortunately, in that, in that book in the, in the New Testament. Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Does that mean he was actually slain? Was that, does that mean that something died? Or in some mystical, uh, you know, unexplainable way, some part or component of Christ died? No, no, not at all. It simply means that Christ was the one promised to one day die. Peter explains it very well, First Peter 1, 18 to 20, he says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He was foreordained. That means... It didn't happen when he was foreordained, but it happened when it was manifested. So Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world in that he was foreordained to fulfill that. But I assure you, there is nothing of Christ that died before the foundation of the world. There is no mystical, spiritual death that gives him some blood that he can minister. some. This is all... Unfortunately, but I have to say, this is all nonsense, brothers and sisters. This is not the way to read the scriptures. But this is what a false view has done. And I mean, the reason I'm emphasizing it is I have had discussions with people regarding this as well. If, if, if these people in the Old Testament, you know, if, if, if they had grace, there must have been a real sacrifice for them to have that. If they were offering sacrifices on earth, uh, you know, and, and praying, and if they were forgiven, there had to be a real equivalent in heaven at the same time that's not the case what was there was the promise of god and we're going to look at that as well because we'll see what what effect that has on the promise of god but i just want us to see the the connection between certain positions and the certain conclusions when you have when you understand a certain position in a wrong way. It actually forces you to read the Bible in a way to make it harmonize with what you think is right. And so what ends up happening is you twist scripture. You end up, you're trying to make it fit. That, that's really what the, the situation is. You're trying to make it fit. And when you're trying to make it fit with a false view, you will most definitely abuse the Bible. This is why I'm sharing some of these examples. And this is why the, we, uh, the importance of the ministry of Christ as our high priest is emphasized time and again for us. Uh, When we talk about the promise, and this is the the thing that I I want to mention as well. Uh, What did the people in the Old Testament have when it comes to salvation? The same thing that Abraham had. What did Abraham have? He had a promise, right? Did Abraham live to see the fulfillment of the promise? I might mention the promise that, you know, in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Paul says, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in your seed shall all nations be blessed. That's the blessing of salvation that will come through the seed of Abraham, Christ. Did Abraham believe to see this fulfilled? But what does the Bible say? He believed God, and it was accounted him for righteousness. We're going to come to this verse uh, in a minute. But uh, I've heard it alarmingly said, and it's like people say, well, are you trying to say that, you know, from this time, all the time through the Old Testament, all they had was a promise. And it's said in a, in a, in a way that it's a, it's a negative thing. Like that. that's not good enough. Brothers, let me tell you something. This is a promise of God you're talking about. It's not some promise of a man. It's not some person saying something. That, this is God's promise. When God promised something. When God promises something. That's as good as done. But it is not yet done until he says when it's done. You with me? So when he says, the seed will one day crush the serpent's head, when he says that in Eden, that doesn't get fulfilled then and there. It doesn't have some mystical thing that fulfills. When he told Abraham, in your seed the nations will be blessed, there wasn't some spiritual thing that started happening among all the nations and was building up until it was finally fulfilled when Christ comes. No. But God's promise is that he promised it and he will do it. The the Bible actually tells us he confirmed it to Abraham by two things. You know, he made an oath by himself and that it's impossible for God to lie. And so do not, uh, th- this this view basically says, it undermines God's promises and it diminishes the promise of God. It says the promise alone is not good enough. You know what? It was good enough for Abraham. And we don't just have the promise now, we have the fulfillment of the promise. So I, I want to emphasize this point. Romans four brings that up. And I want to show this contrast, uh, the point here, that. Paul is making a very powerful point. Romans 4. We'll read those verses because they're key. 3.18 and 21. I'll I'll read it all and then we'll make a comment. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. All Abraham had was the promise of God. He had no other evidence whatsoever. And here Paul is making the point that Abraham, when he believed this, it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed that the God who promised is also able to perform it. And when it would be performed, is it at the same time that God said it would be not at the time of the promise. This is the many times a mistake people make it's, You know, when God says something, it's as good as done. So they assume it's done as soon as God says it. You with me? I'm going to say that again. They, They say it's as good as done when he says it. Therefore, it was done when he says it. No. When God makes promises, especially when he says of things that will happen in the future, they happen when God says they will happen. Not when he speaks them. But it is a solid promise. It's good enough to make Abraham righteous if he believed it. Now Paul makes the, you know... Application for us. He says the same thing applies for us, but there's something that is different. Notice what he says, the same chapter, a little later, verses 23 down to 25. Now it was not written for his sake alone, that's Abraham, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, and was raised again for our justification What's he trying to say here Saying in the same way Abraham is justified we can be too if if we believe on him that raised Jesus from the dead But here's the difference While Abraham believed a promise that was to be fulfilled in the future we believe in the fulfillment of that promise It is faith in both instances, this is how we're justified. But here is the difference. Abraham exercised faith before the promise was realized, but he was justified. The, Paul, the point of Paul is how much more for us? If now Christ has come, he died for our justification and he was raised. So he died for our offenses and he was raised for our justification. How much more do we have reason to believe than Abraham believed? That's his point. But it is faith in both Instances We have the reality that Abraham looked forward to. And so this is why failure to recognize the difference between the promise and the fulfillment of the promise can create all kinds of strange ideas when it comes to the gospel. We apply things that don't apply and we start trying to make verses fit and we end up with a soup of theological trouble. This is really what it ends up being. Uh, Here is another one when it comes to, to this false uh, view that leads to a false uh, conclusion. <coughs> the everlasting gospel is mentioned in uh, Revelation 14. It's the first angel's message. He has the everlasting gospel. And some, I've heard it said as well. Well, an everlasting gospel requires an everlasting priest. Therefore, Christ had to always be a priest. Sounds good, right? Sounds sounds like it makes sense. But while it does sound good, it does not take into account how that gospel is revealed. In In the everlasting gospel, there was the stage where it was given by a promise. And then there was a time when that promise was fulfilled. And that is still part of the everlasting gospel. You see, the promise of God, brothers and sisters, cannot be underestimated. Just because God promised something doesn't mean people did not have the gospel. Do you want a good illustration, a good demonstration of the strength of the promise of God? I'll give you one that we all know. God's promise in the Old Testament, before Christ even came as a man, was good enough for three people to actually get to heaven. Enoch, and Moses, and Elijah. That's how strong the promise is. So you can't say, oh, is all they had was a promise? That's That's the promise of God. You realize Enoch went to heaven before the plan of salvation was accomplished. You realize that? And Moses was raised, and, and we understand the same uh, for Elijah as well. And so the everlasting gospel is how God revealed it to us, not what we think it should look like. And that's important to keep in mind. We can't make things fit into our view of things, particularly if we set, it, uh, we set up with a, with a false view. Uh, The other aspect that's linked with this is, as we just read earlier, that Christ became, uh, he obtained a more excellent ministry. He became the mediator of a better covenant. We know this better covenant also as the new covenant. Uh, After the cross, the ministry of Christ began as the mediator of the the new covenant. But of course, with this this false view that Christ always was uh, a priest, the idea as well goes that this is what's said. All the blessings of the new covenant were available before the cross they were available as soon as man fell not sure if you've ever heard that or not all the blessings of the new covenant are not just exclusive to after the cross they are always there ever since the fall of man as soon as because Christ was a priest and he was ministering and so all these things were available I want to give you a list of a few of these things I want you to think about it and you tell me If all these blessings were available before the cross. Here is the list up there. The blood of the lamb. When was the blood of the lamb shed? At Calvary, at the cross. That's that's a pretty obvious question. Was, and the blood means the life. Was the life of Christ, was his life as a human? The experiences he gained, the victories he obtained. Was that available before he even lived as a human? Utter impossibility. You make his experience on earth meaningless when you believe that. The promise of the comforter that Jesus gave. Was the promised comforter available before Christ came as a man? No. It wasn't even available when he was on earth with with his disciples. He actually told them to wait in Jerusalem. He says, I need to go away. If I don't go away, the comforter will not come. It means it wasn't there up till that time. 4,000 years of earth's history, there was no comforter. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there was no Holy Spirit. But when you understand that the comforter is the Spirit of Christ, With his experience on earth, this is what he was referring to. He's telling him something better is coming because I am now going to heaven. If I don't go, you won't get that better thing. That's the promise of the comforter. That's a uniquely new covenant promise. The way into the holiest was made manifest according to the book of Hebrews. When Christ went in through that veil, and he says that veil is his flesh. That was not made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing, the Bible says. And of course, the one we're talking about today is the better priesthood. The better priesthood was available only when Christ obtained and earned the rights. There was no better priesthood available at that time. Because think about it this way, brothers and sisters. If Christ was a priest in heaven, operating and functioning the whole time, that is the better priesthood. Then why on earth would he institute inferior earthly priesthoods, which would only serve... As getting in the way, not helping people gain access. You know this is what Rome claims for the priesthood that they have today, that the priests today help the laity gain access and connect them with God. What ends up happening is it gets in the way because the real one is functioning at the time. Uh, Now that is of course at this time. Back in the Old Testament times, it's because there was no better priesthood yet. It was still to come. God instituted this inferior order of priesthood to help people understand what it would be like when Christ would come. To point them forward to what would happen in the future. Not to point them to what was happening in heaven at the same time. Because we we don't need an earthly priesthood now, right? Why is that? Because we have a better one. So why did they need an earthly priesthood back then if they also had the better one? It makes no no sense, right? Nonsense, that's what we say when something doesn't make sense. Nonsense theology is where you'll end up in when you set up with false views. Now, I'm not saying this to insult people, I'm just following the trend of, this is how people arrive at one error and then the next error, and they end up with a whole bunch of errors, all intermingled, and then it becomes very difficult to untangle the big bunch, because you have to take one string at a time and try and follow it. And so this is the danger. Another misunderstanding, of course, is misunderstanding the covenants. When you misunderstand the priesthood of Christ, there is absolutely every guarantee. You will be confused about the covenants. 100% guaranteed. And uh, what goes hand in hand with that as well, I found, is a good uh, practical illustration of that, is the belief in the need to keep the feasts today. You familiar with that idea? Now if you are one of these people that believe that, uh, I, I'm not referring to you personally, I'm just referring to the to the theology of it, to the idea feast keeping. Feast keeping to a large degree is based on a false understanding of the priesthood of Christ. you realize that? It's interesting that, uh, you know, when I shared this uh, you know in different places a number of times, and it was quite intriguing to me that uh, when we talk about the priesthood of Christ and, and sharing when it started in the biblical foundation, uh, sometimes after the meeting, I'll have people who, who disagree with me, you know? Believe it or not, it does happen. You, everybody thinks we're, we're all right at the same time. Uh, <laughs> we're always right all the time, right? But uh, there are people that disagree. But when it comes to this point, uh, the point I'm trying to make is, uh, I have been wrong before, don't worry. Uh, I found a consistent pattern. The people who didn't like that Christ's priesthood began after the cross, there was a consistent pattern. They all happened to be those who promoted feast keeping or feast keepers themselves and it really made me think so why why did these guys have a problem other people didn't really have a problem as such it was easy to accept and then i realized because it actually conflicts with that particular view and let me explain why if christ was a priest the whole time from the beginning then the new covenant was there all the time from the beginning with no different part there wasn't a promised part and a fulfilled part it was all for everything was there from the beginning and If people were keeping the feasts in the Old Testament while Christ was a priest in heaven, then it's consistent, while he's still a priest in heaven, for us to also keep the feasts. Because there is no change. There is no point of transition. If there is no change of priesthood, then there is no change of the law. Paul's point that verse we read earlier is, because there was a change of priesthood, there is of necessity also a change of the law. But if you have a consistent priesthood that doesn't change, functioning all that time in heaven, then the things that God gave in this Old Testament time can, just, can be just as valid. You with me? You see, you see the reasoning? Because after all, if, if these things were a shadow or a channel to give people access to a reality that was functioning in heaven at the time, then why don't we use the same channel? So the feast can be a channel to give us access to Christ's priestly ministry. This is a theological disaster. The foundation of it is misunderstanding the priesthood of Christ. When you understand Christ's priesthood began there, then things like the feasts and and things like the covenants, they will automatically clear up straight away. And you will not have to be confused as to what applies here or what applies there and all these Big theological debates, brothers and sisters. This is, uh, this is something that's not happening out there. This is something that's happening among us as believers. This is happening among those who believe the truth about God. There is confusion when it comes to these things. That's why I want to clarify and hopefully see it in the bigger perspective and in the bigger picture. And all these things, on a practical level, they affect our worship. That's what we're talking about, right? How God is worshipped in our practice, in our behavior, is affected by the views that we hold. This is what I'm saying. It's not just head knowledge or we think this and we think that. What we think, what we believe, will rule our behavior and our actions. People actually today believe part of worshipping God correctly and acceptably is to keep the feast days, for example. They believe this is part of worship. The issue in the last days is... Worship, we'll see. So it's not just who we worship. Who we worship is good and important, It's vital, foundational. But also, how do we worship? You might be worshiping the true God, but you must worship in spirit and in truth. There is a right way and a wrong way to worship the true God. You with me? And so it, it's, it's very practical. It's very, it's very real. It's a present living reality. And this is why the biblical truth actually saves us from a lot of these errors, it's a safeguard. It's a safeguard against some of these things. I've talked to people, and and I don't, I don't want to say this in a belittling way, but uh, you know, sometimes people shake their heads and, and they say, I just don't understand how someone can believe in the feasts, because you know, Christ's ministry. And to them, it's just not even an option to consider. Why? Because they can see very clearly a transition. Now I happen to agree with that position, It doesn't make any sense to me how someone can accept that feast keeping is a requirement for New Covenant Christians. Because I can see this. The truth, brothers and sisters, what it does is not because I'm smart. It's because when God gives us the truth, it safeguards us against error. You can see things clearly from God's perspective. This is why God reveals these things to us. So if you happen to be a feast keeper listening to me today... I love you as a brother or a sister. I don't mean to offend you. I'm just dealing with the theology of it. Okay, don't take offense. You didn't come up with the thing. Okay, there are people who came up with it before you. It's just what we believe and learn from others. So don't take it personally. Okay, same here. I'm not telling you anything that I came up with. It's the word of God. And I'm saying this because I understand that this is an issue that that can be a bit debated, especially when we talk about these things. And, and people sometimes shut off when you start talking about a topic They say, oh, now he's gone off and, and, and the walls go up in our mind and, and we shut off. So I don't want that to happen. And if you have any questions, I'll be more than happy to discuss with you uh, afterwards. But I'm just saying the picture, when we look at the big picture, God's plan of salvation, it makes perfect sense. We don't have to work hard to try and make things fit. It makes sense. We see very clearly that the cross did make a difference. It did not make a theoretical difference. It did not make a theological difference. Something real actually changed in this world because of the cross of Christ. Things changed in heaven. Things changed on earth. And we are living, brothers and sisters, in this reality. We're living on this side. We need to grasp a hold of that by faith and come up to that standard. So let me summarize in closing here what Paul says uh, summarizes it very well Romans 8 34 who is he that condemneth it is Christ that died yea rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us well I could have read this verse and we can and this summarizes the whole sermon right (laughs) the list that Paul gives here is very significant Paul is giving all the qualification marks all the strong points that make the intercession of Christ of effect what are they? His death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his intercession. His experience as a man and dying as a man, that's what defeated sin and Satan. That's what silences the accuser. The life of Christ is the only silencer for the accuser. This is what he obtained in order to become our priest. This is how he defeated sin and Satan. And so I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, when we go through an experience that is difficult, when we go through a trial, when the accuser of the brethren comes and he condemns us and gives us a hard time and tells us how miserable Christians we are, how hopeless, uh, you know, people who believe in righteousness by faith and look at you and all these things that we all go through. I don't need to ask for a show of hands. We all go through it because the devil's alive and well. I want to remind you something, well, of something. Jesus Christ is a human being who went through all these experiences, he knows what it's like to go through things like that. He is right now your minister in the heavenly sanctuary. You see what that does? You see when you establish the humanity of Christ, it just gives you boldness, right? That's what Paul says in the book of Hebrews. And this is a beautiful verse in this context. It's our last verse. We'll close with this one. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our profession. What's he doing? He's encouraging believers. Believers who are struggling, right? Believers who are looking at the earthly and maybe being persecuted by the Jews and and questioning Christianity. People who are wondering what's going on. This is what he's doing. People are going through a hard time. So if you are going through a hard time today, that's written to you. We all go through a hard time. So it's to all of us. Let's hold fast our profession. Notice the line of reasoning he uses. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hallelujah. This is what the sanctuary truth is about, brothers and sisters. When we leave the sanctuary doctrine, this is what it's about. Unless it's a practical truth, then I assure you it is utterly worthless. God does not care if you believe there is a building in heaven or not, unless you have Christ as your high priest, unless you are practically having benefit. You think it's any good for God that you believe there is a building in heaven? Now don't get me wrong, I believe there's a building. This is not my way of of getting around it. But we have reduced the sanctuary doctrine, the, the sanctuary truth, to a set of facts that are listed, and if somebody agrees with them, he's got the truth. Somebody disagrees with any point, or he's a heretic, he doesn't have the sanctuary truth. It's all about the priest, brothers and sisters. It's Christ, your high priest. A good example that does away with the sanctuary truth is the Trinity doctrine. The Trinity doctrine says that the priest that lives in this human temple is not Christ, it's someone called God, the Holy Spirit. I don't care how many buildings you believe are in heaven, that you have destroyed the sanctuary truth because the minister is someone who is not qualified to be a priest. Doesn't the Bible say God's Spirit dwells in us? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means the Spirit is the minister. Christ is that minister, He is that comforter. And because He is acquainted with all the feelings of our infirmities, because He knows what we go through, He can actually give practical help. You know, we talk to someone and you go through a difficult experience and they try and, and empathize with you and say, look, you don't know what it's like. You haven't gone through what I've gone through, right? But when you go share that experience with someone who has, it's a totally different story. When they say, you know what? I know exactly what you're going through because that thing happened to me too. Christ is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's, that's why Paul is using that to encourage us as brothers and sisters, Encourages his and the same thing I want to tell you. So what we're sharing is not just, here is a set of theories and ideas. Make sure you believe this one and not the other one. I want to put it to you, brothers and sisters, as a practical reality. Do we come boldly to the throne of grace? Because we now have this precious high priest. Abraham didn't have that yet. You realize that? The humanity of Christ is what qualified him to become that. And this is what is to give us boldness to come to the throne of God. And so how is our worship affected in these last days? As a result of the ministry of Christ as our high priest. That's the question we need to ask. So I want to challenge you with that thought. Because very soon, brothers and sisters, he will finish that work, right? He will step out from that work. You know, the Bible says, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. He's not going to be our intercessor forever in a high priestly capacity. But he is now still, praise the Lord. What are you doing with that? Do we realize how precious that is? Do we realize what it took for Christ? To obtain that experience and how is it being how is it being carried out in our life that's the challenge and that's the thought i want to leave you with if you were blessed by this message remember to subscribe and share it with others we're available on apple podcasts spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts your prayers and support are appreciated may god richly bless you through his son jesus